Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. John 17. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you, have, you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So Jesus' prayer in John 17 
was delivered to his Father in heaven just before he was crucified for the sins of the world. In this prayer, he is not agonizing that he will be going away. He has plans in place for that. We've gone through that. But he is agonizing that his disciples will be left anxious and worried and wondering and on their own in one sense. As he said in the sermon before this prayer, it is better that he go away so that the Spirit will come to be with them. He indeed will never leave or forsake his followers. And the Spirit then now will guide them into all truth and through all the trials that would be coming, coming for those first followers, particularly the apostles, and coming for all believers down through the ages. And so this prayer is a departing prayer to build the confidence of Christ's church. He's leaving. He's physically leaving, and he wants to build the confidence of the church. Within a few short days, Jesus is going to rise from the dead and take his seat to the right hand of the Father. But just before all of those prophesied events take place, he makes this prayer. It's sort of his, the last thing he does for his, his church when he's physically present is to pray. He's entrusting his people to his Father, promising to send the Holy Spirit, and closing out his time with his apostles with this, this benediction, this good word, this encouragement, this just heartfelt prayer for his men. And so we read it, you just heard it, the stakes are very high, the, the fullness of time is, is just around the corner. Now there are two phrases in this, as I preach my last sermon on this, we've, we've spent some time in it, there are two phrases in this prayer that I want to look at. Verse 13, Jesus says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. One of the prayers of Jesus, he wants his people, particularly the apostles, but we'll, we'll expand the application beyond to us, he wants our joy to be full. And then the last verse, verse 26, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me, the love with which the Father loved the Son, may be in them and I in them, right? Christ in his people, the love of God in his people. And so it's not just a feeling, it's, it's like union with Christ love, you know, being in Christ, Christ in us, and the love that the Father and the Son had eternally being then in us by that union. And so Jesus prays that the Father would produce in our hearts joy and a knowledge of the love we have in us by virtue of that union, a love that existed eternally prior to time, outside of time, prior to creation, this love was present. That is the fundamental reality of all things. Do you realize that? Please put science out of your mind. Please put your, the explanations they give about origins out of your mind. 
and believe what God's word says, and that is that there was a time when there was just God, and he was a triune loving God. Okay, that's the fundamental reality of all things. That should encourage you. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose a grip on that. Don't believe all the hoo-ha that you hear elsewhere. On that night, when he prayed this prayer in the hearing of his apostles, he stated that he was speaking it out into the world for a purpose. He was vocalizing this out into the world for a purpose, and that purpose is still being enacted. This prayer still resonates around the world. Jesus spoke this prayer, the apostles heard it, recorded it for all time in the inspired word for a purpose, and that purpose is that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Joy. Fullness of joy. Jesus, the lover of your soul, is concerned that you might be joyful, that that we might be free from the anxieties that so easily demand all of our devotion and, and all of our time. He's concerned that in a world that is, is filled with sin and evil and, and hatred, we might know something of his incorruptible love. The apostles would shortly have much to be anxious about. They would see their teacher, their savior, dying on the cross, suffering. And as you know, that was so much for the apostles to bear that they were scattered. They fled. They left Jesus. They abandoned their post. It was too much. Where then was the joy of their hearts? Where then was the anchor of their souls in the love of God? Other than John, none of the apostles are there to see their Savior die. Faith now had to come alive right? A remembrance of everything Jesus had taught to them um, had to come alive in their hearts. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, understanding and faith and joy came. But those anxieties came upon them as they come upon us. Jesus prays this prayer so that the words might stick in the minds of the apostles, that they might know what is coming for them, that they might take courage in the midst of a world that hates them and wants to kill them. Jesus wants them still to have joy in the midst of all this fallen, God-hating, perverse, sinful, broken, lustful, lawless world. He still wants them to have joy. He wants them fixed on his love, which, as I said earlier, is incorruptible. While everything under the sun constantly cycles around and around and around, the love of God is permanently fixed, stable, unmoving, perfect, unchangeable reality. It is the core of everything as we see in the action of the Son of God who is sent to redeem the sinful world because the Father loved that world. So he sent his Son. Now, we all know what joy is. It is, it is happiness down in the recesses of the heart. 
It is rejoicing. It is the state of mind and heart when we uh, spontaneously break out into song. Do any of you do that? Other than all of my daughters? <laughs> Joy is children on Christmas, Christmas morning. It's, it's the moments before a feast. But don't get me wrong, it's not a mindless giddiness. Joy is profoundly strong because, as we'll see in a minute, it comes through trials and because of trials. That's how joy, that's how we, we get joy. It's only through trials and because of trials. Joy is knowing that if God is for us, it doesn't matter who or what is against us, right? Trials prove that truth. And trials bring the joy that is propped up by that truth. Joy was what I felt overwhelmingly the first emotion I felt when I was converted. Joy. It's unbounded joy. Joy all the time. Um, when God opened my eyes to the reality, beauty, strength, and compassion of his son, Jesus Christ, I was giddy, but but I was, I had spent a lot of time being a dour, angsty, confused teenager. And I was miserable. And then I was converted, and it was joy that flooded my heart. It was joy. I was joyful. I sang. I looked at the, I looked at the sky and the clouds and praised God. You know, I, I saw things I hadn't seen. I prayed with thanks, thankfulness. I, I enjoyed things that I had never enjoyed before, like other people. Some of us are still working on that. I smiled. I was not alone. And I had the, this glorious thought, God was for me, not against me. God knew me, and he loved me, and the proof was in the work of his son for my soul. I was truly joyful. Many of you have had that same experience on, at your conversion. You, you think back upon the time when you first came to faith, and it was undoubtedly marked with great joy. And we hear, I mean, the wonderful thing about membership interviews is we get to Hear about your testimony of that joy coming into your hearts by faith. That's the best work that the session gets to do is membership interviews. So what has happened since then? Why is it that the joy is not there? Why is it that we find ourselves often crying out like David in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation? In David's case and in ours, we know why the joy has ebbed and flowed. Most often, it is because we've, we've sinned or we've been sinned against. But a lack of joy is due to sin. Sin's corruption and our own givenness to sin. We have struggled through a fallen world, all those good lessons we learned from the book of Ecclesiastes, you know. 
Our trust in God has risen and fallen, and with it our joy is continually like replaced with anxiety, and it's back and forth. Sin, ours and others, crushes joy. And we always go after sin because we think it promises joy. But it is what crushes joy. Trials, physical illnesses, family fights, persecution, just the cares of every day crush our joy. Forgetfulness also. Forgetfulness, or or we could call it worldly-mindedness, crushes our joy. Sin, trials, and forgetfulness. Those are the three things that I think really militate against uh, our joy. When it comes to sin, the only way to navigate back to joy, back to a sense of the love of God, that, uh, back to a sense of the love of God, is to repent. Repent is a wonderfully positive word. When we hear repent, it should be like, ah, yes, that is a... That is a good concept, but we always hear it and we're like, "Uh uh-oh, but it's glorious. Repenting is just naming before God your sins as he sees them. That's confession, and repentance is ultimately seeing the sin as God sees it and being disgusted by it and turning away, right? And that's when joy comes back. Right? So often, brothers and sisters, we attempt to deal with our sins by arguing with God about whether or not they are sins. That's not really a sin. I'm going to negotiate this one with God. We blame our sins on God and His providence. We blame our sin on the sins of others. If she hadn't said that, I wouldn't have done that. It's her fault. Right? We reason with ourselves, has God really said? And in arguing with God, like Job, the anxiety will build and build and build and build until God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Rather than argue with God, confess your sins to him. He is gracious. You're not going to... You're not going to a God who is lacking graciousness and is a harsh master. You're going to the God of all grace, so confess your sin to Him and ask Him to grant you repentance. Confess your sins to your spouse, to your elders, to your brothers and sisters in Christ and see what comes of it. See what comes of it. See if there isn't an an unburdening that leads to joy. Joy. When it comes to trials, right, trials being another thing that, that... steals our our joy. God's word does not speak in riddles here. It's very clear, right? Typically when trials come, our faith retreats. Our questions of God multiply and our joy is quickly replaced with anxiety. We have a, a tendency to see trials as a competition with our joy when what God actually teaches us is that we are to consider our trials as opportunities for joy. This is distinctively Christian teaching. You will find that teaching nowhere else in any other so-called sacred book. Our trials will lead us to joy. 
Christians are the only ones who can rejoice because of trials. The worldling hates trials and will do everything he can to avoid them, to avoid any pain, to avoid any discomfort. Christians not only may rejoice in the midst of their suffering, but they may consider trials as a reason to rejoice. How is that? Well, they know what trials are. They know God is in them. They know that trials are not just bad luck or cruel fate. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you can counter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, including joy. The Christian knows that trials, being called a fool, right, for believing in Jesus, getting laid off from work, getting news from the doctor that isn't good. The Christian knows that these things are from God, ordained by God, and for a purpose, our perfection. It's for our building up, right? It's to make us honestly useful. Read biographies of great Christian missionaries and pastors. One thing that marks them all is that they suffered. They all suffered at the hands of God. They suffered deaths of loved ones. They suffered uh, horrible diseases and torture. They suffered discomfort on a, a daily basis. They suffered loss of friends, humiliating persecution. They wandered about this earth, right, as those for whom the world is not worthy. And Jesus said of Paul, right, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. The apostles, after they were flogged and their backs were bleeding, rejoiced that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. I mean, Scripture is amazingly consistent in this regard. Trials are an opportunity for joy rather than an opportunity for depressed, anxious moping. But I've got some moping to repent of, personally. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Rome, we are to exult in our tribulations. (laughs) Exult. Exult. In our tribulations. Knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So we consider trials joy not simply because we know that one day they will be over, though that certainly is a part of hope. We Consider trials joy because they demonstrate that God is paying attention to us. He is honing us, right? He is disciplining us. He is making us ready for the next life. He is making us like his son, Jesus Christ, who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We, as Paul says in Philippians, are completing in this life what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. The trials that come are God's discipline, and discipline, dear brothers and sisters, you know this, is 
a proof of God's love. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. He loves his sons. He disciplines his sons. He's not like us miserable fathers who, who are scared to discipline our sons. He does it because he loves his sons. And so, fathers, our lack of discipline is a lack of love for our children. Do you realize that? When the next trial comes upon you, or how about the one you're in the midst of right now? Don't see that as an opportunity to, for the flesh, but see it as an opportunity for joy. Understand it to be the very thing that gives you the opportunity to be a witness of the power and glory of Jesus Christ, right? That you have something that overcomes the misery of this world. And it's the most important thing to you. It's the thing that is most on your thoughts. It's the thing that most animates you every day. Not the weight of the trial, but the weight of glory that you have in Jesus Christ by faith. Don't immediately go into crisis mode anymore. Stop it. Stop doing that. Don't go into crisis mode. Go into joy mode. When something hard comes along, Flick that switch of faith and go into joy mode. Rejoicing mode, singing mode, right? Christians can do this. Christians alone can do that. We can rejoice when we are plopped down right in the midst of the fire. Joy is ours in Christ Jesus. It is, as, the, as, as he said in the prayer in John 17, indicates it is Christ's joy that he gives to his children. He gives what is his to his people. So our sin can crush our joy, our trials can, and I also said that forgetfulness crushes our joy. And what I mean by that is this, we forget so easily what we have in our salvation. I mean, one of the effects of the fall is to make you incredibly forgetful. One of the... One of, my main griefs in this life is I can, I can read Scripture and immediately forget it. I can at one point be reading Scripture and be like in heaven and instantly close it and forget what I read and forget what it meant and forget what I was meditating on. I mean, this is one of the horrible results of the corruption of our nature. And when we come to Christ, yes, we have the Holy Spirit at work in us, but there's war going on, right? And that spirit does take ground, but that flesh does fight. 
And we forget. We just forget the most obvious things. When I was deep in the throes of anxiety in a trial like I've never had six years ago, I needed to be just reminded from people that there was a God. That's where I was at. I just needed to be told there's a God. I had forgotten that that level of truth. And so we're so forgetful. Don't don't forget. We forget so easily what we have in salvation. We forget the power of Jesus Christ. We lose our childlike wonder at heaven and at God. We, we, as Scripture puts it, set our mind on the things that are on the earth rather than the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. We forget that once, you know, that, that vision, that knowledge was, was once our only thought. We forget what once filled us with joy every moment. Perhaps that time when we were first converted or we had some extraordinary mercy that we experienced from Him. How is that possible to forget? Well, it's possible because Scripture is constantly exhorting us not to do it. And so let me help you set your mind on things above by first setting your mind on things below, not that are on earth, but that are in hell. Now, now, serious, think about this. Perhaps your joy will be amplified when set when we set it in relief to the joylessness of hell, the place where all those who refuse to bow their knees to King Jesus will live eternally. And and it's so hard to talk about hell today. You know that. So many jokes are made about it. So many supposedly orthodox theologians have denied its existence or redefined it as, you know, it's about as bad as a Swedish jail, which is a nice place to live. You get free cigarettes. But hell is real, and Scripture teaches that hell is awful. Think of it this way. Hell is joylessness eternal. That will characterize hell. Joylessness. Unending joylessness. If our sins, our trials, our forgetfulness cause us as Christians to be joyless in this world, hell is unrelenting sin, permanent forgetfulness, and unproductive trials. Here are trials, the trials of Christians produce an eternal weight of glory. For those in hell, the unrelenting punishment of God, their trials do not produce anything good. No change of character. It simply produces more punishment and more bitterness and more cursing of God. It produces more and more judgment. Hell is unceasing joylessness, unceasing hopelessness, bitterness, hatred, judgment. Hell is the complete absence of any hope of joy. Here's how Jonathan Edwards put it. There are none in hell but what have been haters of God and so have procured his wrath and hatred on themselves. And there they shall continue to hate him forever. No love to God will ever be felt in hell. But everyone there perfectly hates him and so will continue to hate him. 
and without any restraint will express their hatred to him, blaspheming and raging against him while they gnaw their tongues for pain. And though they all join together in their enmity and opposition to God, yet there is no union or friendliness among themselves. They agree in nothing but hatred and the expression of hatred. They hate God and Christ and angels and saints in heaven. And not only so, but they hate one another like a company of serpents or vipers, not only spitting out venom against God, but at one another, biting and stinging and tormenting each other. Joylessness eternal. No possibility of joy ever eternally, forever hating and being hateful. Unrelenting, complete lack of joy. Now, it's very helpful then to contrast your life now with eternal punishment, isn't it? It's almost, it almost makes us think that our bitterness and suffering in this life are just little things. Little things. They are. But honestly, contemplating hell can even make a godless man joyful in this life. But dear brothers and sisters, we who have been included in this prayer of John 17 are to have Jesus' joy. In this life, it means rejoicing in the momentary light afflictions that God gives to us to produce that eternal weight of glory. Beyond that, this joy is to be made full, which I take to mean that it will be made full when we rest in that glorified state in the presence of God. That full joy must be part of the joy that we have now in this world. Heaven is contrasted to hell. Heaven is eternal, unrelenting joy. Unrelenting. You won't have a choice. To be joyful, you will be in bondage to joy. Even you people who like to be depressed won't get to be. <laughs> Again from Edwards, but oh, what rest is there in that world which the God of peace and love fills with his own glorious presence and in which the Lamb of God lives and reigns, filling it with the bright, brightest and sweetest beams of His love, where there is nothing to disturb or offend, and no being or object to be seen that is not surrounded with perfect amiableness and sweetness, where the saints shall find and enjoy all that they love, and so be perfectly satisfied, where there is no enemy and no enmity, but perfect love in every heart and in every being, where there is perfect harmony among all the inhabitants, no one envying another, but everyone rejoicing in the happiness of every other, where all their love is humble and holy and perfect, perfectly Christian, without the least carnality or impurity, where love is always mutual and reciprocated to the full. And all this in the garden of God, in the paradise of love, where everything is filled with love and everything conspires to promote and kindle it and keep up its flame and nothing interrupts it, but everything has been fitted by an all-wise God for its full enjoyment under the greatest advantages ever. And all, too, 
where the beauty of the beloved object shall never fade, and love shall never grow weary nor decay, but the soul shall more and more rejoice in love forever. Oh, what tranquility will there be in such a world as this? And who can express the fullness and blessedness of this peace? What a calm is this. How sweet and holy and joyous. So, dear brothers and sisters, in this life we have trials to give us joy because they are making us like Jesus. In this life to come, our joy will be made full because we will, be, will, we will have been made like him and we will be with him. No more departure for which he must prepare us and encourage us and for which he must pray. No, we'll, we'll simply be at home with Jesus. No more reason for us to have any anxieties. Joy eternal in the presence of God, but that eternal joy bleeds into this life for the Christian, right? Right? We live in a sort of already and not yet status, even in regards to our full joy. The Spirit lives within His people revealing the truths of God and of eternal life, how can there not be an extraordinary amount and quality of joy in the Christian? Even in the midst of, of a dark night of the soul, when you have a hard time getting out of the bed, there's still a spark of joy in the Christian. We Christians are a paradox to pagans, aren't we? We rejoice in suffering. We understand that the last will be first and the first last. We give up now so that we may receive when we die. All goes to show you that this world is not our home. Where Jesus is is where the fullness of joy will be consummated. Let me read you this passage from 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for his salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly re rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So Jesus prayed for you. that you would have joy and that you would know the love he has for you. And so remember that, dear brothers and sisters, as we walk this veil of tears. 
we may have joy and we may revel in the love that he has for us. You will not live long in this fallen world, but will one day find yourself transported into that world of love. If, if you have faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We thank you that you have given us joy. This world is a slog. It is tough sledding. It is hard. And yet we have joy that you have given us. And this prayer has been fulfilled. We know it, Father. We've experienced it. We know it even now. Now when our minds are set on things above. We know this joy. And we're so grateful for it, Father. We are amazed that we can come to a knowledge of your love. That existed before creation. And that we can enter into it. And that that love has been poured in, out in our hearts through the Spirit. Oh Lord, what joy, what glory. May that direct our steps. May we put down the idolatry of depression. May we put down the idolatry of, of pain and live in the joy of the knowledge of the Lord. Help us, Father. Forgive us when we don't do this and teach us how to do this through your spirit and through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.